Good morning. It's my privilege to once again open up the Gospel of Mark as we continue our study through the shortest of the Gospels, but by no means is it the least uh, or the most insignificant or least significant. So if you would turn with me to chapter 14, and if you would bow as I ask the Lord for help. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who has not only inspired it, so that it has been recorded for each of us, but continues to teach, just as Jesus promised that he would. So I pray that we would see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ today that our lives would be changed and that you would be honored in all that we do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Mark chapter 14, we come to what is considered the climax of the gospel. As we consider the life of Jesus Christ, Mark has, in his own way, uh, been describing the details and the account of Jesus' life, doing so in a way that um, speaks of the uh, immediacy of of what Christ was about doing. And the language that Mark would use would reflect the nature of Christ's ministry. And there are some observations that I would like for us to consider that uh, will help us review the previous 13 chapters of Mark, as we also, I believe, will see these same observations in our passage here in Mark chapter 14 today. The first thing I'd like for us to consider is that within the Gospel of Mark, not that it is exclusive here in this Gospel, but here in the Gospel of Mark, we see uh, the sovereign work of God in redemption. We see that in the timing of events. That there's times when Jesus would perform a miracle and he'd say, do not tell anyone because it wasn't time for people to know that the Messiah was here yet. Uh, He would escape from the crowds because it wasn't time for him to be received as the king of Israel at this point. We see God's sovereignty in even the imagery, if you will, uh, or the types or the pictures that were being uh, created through the miracles. When someone would, uh, was lame, they would have the ability to walk again. That would have a spiritual significance in what Jesus was doing in that context. More importantly, we see more often when someone was blind, representing the fact that those who were hearing Jesus' teachings at that moment weren't getting it. Their faith was clouded. They weren't able to see. And so Jesus, or Mark would use one of Jesus' accounts of healing someone's blindness to, to show us what he was really doing spiritually. And even through the accomplishment of what, Mark, uh, what Jesus Christ was doing, Mark would show that Jesus was doing exactly what God had intended each step of the way, regardless of what the opposition had in mind. We'll see that in our passage today as we'll read through then when, when Jesus, he would reveal to his disciples the one who would betray him. Uh, he would sovereignly be able to uh, distinguish, or not distinguish, but to set up the preparations for the Passover, just as he did with the triumphal entry and 
making sure that there was a colt secure for him to ride into the city with, uh, that there would be an upper room for them to enjoy the Passover meal together. Uh, We'll also see even while he is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he is able to stop and say, you know what, the betrayer's here, we're moving on with, with the plan. And so Mark makes it very clear that God and particularly the person of Jesus Christ, is sovereign in the work of redemption. We also see man's relentlessness in the rejection of Christ. There was obstruction from those who were self-righteous, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees. When Jesus would forgive someone of their sins, they would question, and it caused them to want to deliver him to death. When he was fellowshipping with the publicans and the sinners, it created rage within them so that they wanted to deliver him again unto death. Healing on the Sabbath, not following the traditions of the Pharisees, these type of things were getting under their skin and they were, obstruct, uh, they were trying to obstruct what Jesus was teaching and what Jesus was doing. Even when he went through cleansing the temple, it caused them once again to try to figure out ways of how they could destroy this man. And they were relentless in their rejection of who Jesus Christ was. But it wasn't just in the self-righteous religious leaders of the day. We also see an obstructive nature even within the disciples themselves and their lack of faith. They, They didn't understand. Jesus would teach them and teach them again. But yet they still were not getting it. And in their own way, even though they were innocent bystanders, if you will. Their own selfish nature on the inside was resisting what Jesus was teaching them in truth. When you think about uh, walking on water, it wasn't so much that they didn't believe that Jesus would walk on water. It was the fact that they didn't understand the loaves. That's what Jesus said. And if they understood what Jesus was doing through feeding the thousands of people with literally no food, then they would understand that He was the Son of God and that He could do all things. So when it came to the work of redemption, we were, we're not going to be surprised uh, that when Jesus tried to tell them that the Son of Man was going to suffer, that Peter would stand up and say, oh, no, you're not. That he would try to say that the Son of Man is going to be delivered, that people would not listen and understand exactly what was being said. When he would remind them again in chapter 10 that the Son of Man would be delivered, what do these disciples do? Well, they try to figure out who's going to be first in the kingdom. Even when they weren't aware of what they were doing. They were relentless in their rejection of the ministry and the redemption that the Savior was offering. And the third observation, in light of these two first points, is the fact that grace is undeniably visible once the life has been changed. There was a demon-possessed man, and once Jesus Christ exercised this demon from his life. He wanted to continue on with Jesus. Jesus told him to go back and tell people what I have done. When blind Bartimaeus was healed from his blindness, he continued on with Jesus. Their lives were changed. And even in our passage today, we'll see the life of someone who was changed in an incredible way, and that would be in Mary, the sister of Lazarus. But all of these observations, I hope that we will keep in mind and we will we'll look into as we continue. As we consider what I would like to title this sermon as the beauty, 
betrayal, and the gospel. The beauty we find beginning in verse 3 of chapter 14, if you will follow along as I read. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you have always the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Wow. Wherever the gospel is heard, what she has done will be told about her. It's pretty impressive. I don't know about you, but I know my name's probably not mentioned wherever the gospel's heard. Not that it needs to be, but I don't know of many other people. Now, you could probably go through Scripture and come up with your own list, but this is, to my knowledge, the only reference where Jesus said that you will be remembered wherever the gospel, wherever, to the ends of the earth. So apparently what she did was quite spectacular. What is it that she did? Well, first understanding who this woman was, and we have the account that goes alongside in John's gospel, chapter 12, in which we understand that this woman was Mary. You remember Mary and Martha? In John chapter 12, the account really speaks much of her service, uh, worshiping the Lord at his feet, as opposed to, Mar- to her sister Martha, who was busy making sure everything was taken care of. And we've, we've heard that account, uh, I'm sure, many times. But their brother Lazarus was the one who was raised from the dead. That was pretty significant as well. Mary's life was changed. And it's interesting to me that this woman who... At one point in her life, not that long ago, in this context, had expected Jesus to come very quickly so that her brother would not even die. They had sent words saying that our our brother Lazarus is sick and he's about to die, so please come. And Jesus delayed his coming intentionally so that they could understand a huge uh, part of what he was about. Not just healing the sick, but that he was actually the resurrection and the life. And I'm wondering if perhaps there was a, this bottle of ointment, this, this nard, this very expensive perfume that was used to uh, anoint a dead body to kind of preserve it to some extent, but more importantly to keep it from smelling bad after a couple of days. Perhaps she didn't use that on Lazarus because she expected him to die or to be uh, healed before he died. But now, perhaps, is a bottle of ointment 
that she's going to share on someone who she knows is about to die. You see, I think Mary understood what Jesus had been teaching so that when the time had come for him to go into Jerusalem, that the Passover lamb had truly come. And she used this opportunity to worship him as she anointed his head. She broke the bottle open at the neck. This bottle was not going to be used again. And she poured it all out on Christ. And Jesus mentioned that what she had done was good and that she has done all that she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. She knows what is about to happen. And through her worship, she's demonstrated that she found something greater than a political figure to invest her money into a campaign. That she found something more important than a sports team that you could follow around and buy all the t-shirts and watch all the games and and attend all the meetings that, that, that go along with that. She found something bigger than perhaps something that we would save up for a large amount of money knowing that it would be very costly and this one day use it all up in her own. She found something more than a penny stock that she could invest in so that she could have just huge riches come about in a short amount of time. No, what she found was life. And it was about to die for her. So for her it was no hardship to deny herself, to take up her cross and to follow Christ. For she was going to save her life by losing hers for Christ's sake and the Gospels. It was not too high a price for her to sell what she had to gain eternal life. She found Christ a wonderful, valuable treasure that was worth everything to her. For those of you who were a part of our discipleship conference, remember these statements from Dr. Platt? Jesus is worthy of total abandonment and supreme adoration. To follow Jesus means to live with radical abandonment for His glory. You see, we look at the scales and we weigh what this world has to offer. And then we consider who Jesus Christ is. And it's not even close. That Jesus, the Son of God, is not just more valuable, He's the only value. He's the only thing worth worshiping. He's the only one who deserves our praise. He's the only one who deserves all that we have. And that is what He requires. And Mary demonstrated it. During this time, In the home of someone else who I'm sure his life was changed. Obviously Simon was a leper. The term the leper distinguishing him from Simon Peter. And any other man named Simon. Which there are many in this culture. But she takes this opportunity. And they scolded her. How dare she waste her precious perfume. I wonder. I know about me. 
to some degree, but my heart's deceitful and wicked. I don't know it as well as God does. But I wonder if we were considered, has anybody ever said that about us? I mean, about something that was actually worth saying that about? Now, I, I realize that somebody might say, they paid how much for that house? That car cost how much money? That dress, oh my. I can't believe she paid that much. Now we're on the other side of that, right? Well, if you're like me, when you go buy stuff, you wait until not only it's on clearance, or that they give you an extra 20% off the clearance, but they give you an extra 10% coupon to take off the 20% so that you can revel in the fact that, you know what, I didn't spend so much money, but I saved a lot. Yeah. Right? That's good. There you go. Thank you. You can tell a pastor in any room, yeah. Because they're spending on those big cars, right? Yes. But how often would it be, you know, and I may be pleasantly surprised, but in the offering that we just received, there might be a check in there for $50,000 because someone sold their house. I said, you know what, I want to give this to the ministry of the Lord. and I'm, going, I'm not exactly sure. There, there may be a trailer park or maybe there's a, a little camper village or maybe, you know, maybe just a large SUV that I can live in. But you know, what, I, you know what, I don't really need this house. So I'm going to sell it and I want to put the check in the, in the bank for the church to use to, to send missionaries to the other side of the world so that the people can hear the gospel. I would hope that we would say, Praise the Lord. But I know what we would say. Did they really do that? Don't they realize that $50,000 can at least buy them an apartment for a few years? Can maybe buy them a larger SUV so they're a little bit more comfortable when they sleep at night? What did they do that for? Are Are they about to die or something? I mean, it's what we think. We rationalize it. We would never think anybody would do something crazy like what she did. She, she broke open a, a bottle of perfume that would cost a commoner his year's worth of wages. How much do you money do you make in a year? And when was the last time that you gave that much money to the Lord? I'm not saying that you should. But if you did, it sh- I would hope that it wouldn't surprise us. Because after all, Jesus Christ has called us to deny ourselves and, and to, to, to die to Him. Jesus told those who were struggling with this issue to sell all that you've got and give it away to the poor. This was beauty. Broken over a Savior who would give his life, not just for her, but he would give his life as a ransom for many. Now, it's not coincidental that this account is located where it is. In verse 1 of chapter 14, Mark leads into this account about Mary with these words. 
It was now two days before the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Mark tells us that there is a group of people that are waiting to sneak up on Jesus, take him while no one else is looking, because after all, he was quite popular with the crowd. But they wanted to kill him. And how does he follow up? Well, let me take you back a couple of days to this woman who broke this bottle of ointment and perfume over the Lord Jesus Christ. And it made people angry at her because they said this money could be that was what could be made from selling this perfume could be used to help the poor. Well, guess who one of those who were angry was? It was a man named Judas. And in verse 10, Mark follows. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. If Jesus had, Judas had not been motivated up to this point, now was the time. Jesus had finally hit his last nerve. And if there was ever a moment for him to set him up, he was going to find it right now. Jesus had acted recklessly for the last time in Judas's mind. And now he would have an opportunity to not only deal with Jesus, but he would get paid for it. A man who is mad because they didn't sell the perfume to help the poor is now taking opportunity to receive payment to set Jesus up for murder. It's been said the saddest thing about betrayal is that it never comes from your enemies. Judas was one of the twelve. Now again, it wasn't a surprise to Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, an observation that we make in this gospel is Jesus is sovereign. He understands. But nevertheless, this is somebody that he has poured his life into for two or three years. Has taught him what life is all about. And he knows that he will be betrayed by him. Now within this context, we have a very familiar passage in verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do we have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came to the twelve, and they were reclining at the table and eating. 
And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out of the Mount of Olives. Again, Mark quickly describes this scene. There's more details in other gospel accounts. But again, what he is conveying to us are these two responses to the Savior. First, he, he, he creates the context in which this woman is giving everything to Christ because of what he is about to do. And now he's sort of setting the stage and the context for the ones who are about to do the opposite. And ultimately, Jesus Iscariot himself. But just as he had prepared the cult for his entry in Jerusalem, Jesus had taken care of the upper room. Just go prepare for it. We're going to observe. The Passover again is just very quickly is the, uh, the, the, the memorial feast that they would do on an annual basis, remembering when God brought them out of Egypt, brought them out of slavery, brought them into a, an existence where they were no longer serving Pharaoh, but now they were free and liberated to serve God. And finally, the Passover lamb, which all of that was foretelling through the centuries, was now being fulfilled in Jesus Christ as they were eating together. That which we'll be observing next Lord's Sunday is just our memorial of that of what Jesus did as he commanded us to do. But in this context, he's just simply identifying who the one that will uh, betray him is. That'd make you comfortable at the table, wouldn't it? As everyone's dipping their bread into the cup, as it would be common, and all of a sudden when it came your time, you're it. What? Now Judas knew he was it. Now he may have tried to paint a picture and have the, the straight face as, Oh, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? But Christ identified him before the other disciples. We know from the other accounts that he left before Jesus began ministering with the rest of the disciples. But Jesus made it very clear as he continues to teach his disciples what this really is all about. As we're breaking this bread, this is my body Take and eat. This wine that we're drinking, it's my blood. Drink it. And he mentions to them that he will, this blood will be poured out for many. And that he will not drink of it again until he comes back. As we continue on in verse 27, Jesus said to them, I'm sorry, verse 25. Truly I say, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until that day comes when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out of the Mount 
or to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. We talked about in our Christian growth group this morning, but as Joshua was making preparations uh, to die and leave the people with instruction about whom they should serve, it was sort of implied in his instruction and then reiterated through a specific words that you will not be able to keep this covenant. Jesus here says you will all fall away. You're not the one that will ultimately betray me, but you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Quoting Zechariah chapter 13. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that I may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. This is one of 14 mentions where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is his favorite designation of himself through the Gospels. And it's an indication of his humanity. Not that he wasn't God, but it stressed the fact that he was truly human. And if we need no other reminder, just read the previous verses. He was facing death. But even more, he was facing the wrath of God. That each of us deserve, knowing that He would bear it upon His shoulders, that it would please God to bruise Him. He was human. Stress, anxiety, fear. He prayed to the Father, remove the cup from me. It makes me forget the headache that I had last week. It makes me forget the person who cut me off in traffic the other day. It even makes me feel a little more easy when I hear someone close to me has passed away or is sick or has cancer. 
Jesus was facing the sins of the world. But the time had come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, verse 42, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a crowd of, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, Judas, had given them a son. I'll kiss the man, seize him, lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. And one of those was like some of us. He was prepared. He brought his knife, pulled it out, cut off an ear, one of the servants. After the Lord took care of that, he said, verse 48, If you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. The humanity of Christ was displayed. Stress. His troubled soul. His desire to avoid death. The writer of Hebrews chapter 5 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. He wasn't spared death. Christ's example there in the garden does set to some degree an example for us and for the disciples that we should be dependent on God in prayer. And that ultimately we are to be obedient to him even unto death. But you know what? The writer of Hebrews goes on to say what else we can be thankful for here. In verse 8 he says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Do you know that truth today for your own? Did what Jesus suffer? Do you claim it for your own? Do you, do you really believe that Jesus paid it all? Do you really believe that through His obedience He makes you, by your faith, obedient and therefore becomes the salvation for your soul? I urge you today if you are here still running your hell-bound race to understand that the price has been paid. That Jesus Christ didn't just simply suffer in prayer into the garden, but He would be nailed to a tree shedding His blood so that the Passover lamb would truly redeem 
those who were lost and restore them to newness of life. And it doesn't require your obedience. The writer of Hebrews isn't saying that he's a source of eternal salvation to all who have obeyed him as if it was something that you've earned through your obedience. But he's saying he's a source of salvation to those who are obeying him. That is, the ones who are obeying him by faith. That's the good news. Are you in Christ today? Are you obedient to Him today? Well, we also find in this passage that Peter, as well as the others, weren't as strong as they thought they were either. Because in verse 50, they all left Him and fled. A young man following him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. They left him and fled. The ones who were able to drink the cup that Christ drank left him and fled. Each one at the table who said, surely not I, left him and fled. Even Peter who said, even if all these other weaklings leave you, I will even go to you to death. Left him and fled. Even a young man standing by who was seized by the garment broke free and escaped naked. And while many believe that this could indeed be the gospel writer Mark, I see myself. I see myself fighting and screaming in my flesh, running away from Christ. But as we sang earlier, God's grace saw me in my pitiful state opened my eyes and brought me to the cross. And unlike Judas, Jesus had given them a word that he would lead them once again. Just like Zechariah chapter 13 verse 8, Jesus had spoken about them that they would scatter like sheep In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9, he reminds them that he will restore them back. He's speaking of Israel there, but just as Jesus applies it to his disciples in the immediate context, he applies, I believe we can make the application in the immediate context, and that they will be restored as well. Now in verse 53, as they led Jesus to the high priest, all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter, although he fled and ran away, followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. He was afraid of being associated with Jesus, but he wasn't afraid of trespassing. 
And as he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Jesus had warned the disciples this day would come when they would be turned over to the courts. But it wasn't this day. This day was his day. Jesus told them that when they would be delivered to the courts, that the Spirit would give them words. But it wasn't this day. This was his day. And it was his day that once he finally opened his mouth, he proclaimed clearly, beyond what all the other false witnesses in this world will deny, he claimed that, yes, I am the Son of God. Yes, I am the Messiah. And you will see the Son of Man when he comes in glory. Peter was below in the courtyard when this was taking place, verse 66. One of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You're also with the Nazarene Jesus? But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. If leaving him... And running away wasn't enough. I do not even know who you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered. He remembered. He remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice you're going to deny me three times and he broke down and wept Peter the one who when Jesus asked 
Who do you say that I am? Proclaimed, you're the Son of God. You are the Son of God. Another gospel we read, are you going to lead me too? Peter stood up and said, where else will we go? You have the words of life. But here, on Jesus' day, he denied him three times. And he broke down and he wept. Thankfully, as we are incorporated into our worship service today, Peter didn't stay there. As incredible as the denial that Peter made is, he didn't stay there. For Peter would go on to write in his first letter to the church, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself for not your sins. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that not you, but that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep Like those that Zechariah promised would be scattered. But you, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. My life could not be painted in such a way like Mary's. Yeah, there's been times where I have tried to serve the Lord. There have been times when I've prepared. But there's way so many other times when I've fled and ran away. But it's by the grace of God that I've now returned. And I've been restored to the shepherd of my soul. Let's pray.